final reading is from Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. What do you think of when you hear the word treasure? Kids? Gold? Silver? Jewels? Money? That's what you're going to say? Anyone else? Pirates. That's what I think of. When I hear the word treasure, I think of pirate treasure, which usually involves all the things that we just mentioned. Gold, silver, doubloons, pieces of eight, treasure chests full of gold and coins. The word treasure doesn't uh, have much purchase for us today, does it? We don't uh, look at our bank statements or our house or our uh, car and call it treasure, do we? Maybe occasionally we'll talk about it like that, but uh, it's not, not that often that that occurs. The verb, however, is perhaps... Uh, more familiar to us, right? When we say that we treasure something, then generally we know what that means. It means that you you love it, that you uh, care for it, that you value it. If you treasure something, then you think about it, you tell others about it, and you, know, you would grab it out of a burning building if it was the only thing that you could grab. Well, Jesus tells his disciples in this passage what they should treasure and what that means about their hearts and about their lives. There are three parts to what he says in this section of Matthew chapter 6. First, he gives the command to store up treasure. And then he gives us two metaphors that tell us what doing that looks like in our lives, having a healthy eye or healthy eyes and having one master. So these are the three metaphors that Jesus uses, and they all speak essentially to the same issue. We'll look at them through those headings. Now, if you're visiting us this morning, we're currently working our way through the book of Matthew, and we are about halfway through Jesus's famous Sermon on the Mount, which you find in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. So let's have our Bibles and hearts open to his word this morning as we look at the first part of what Jesus has to say here. Firstly, store up treasure in heaven. Store up treasure in heaven. Some people are treasure hunters today. Did you know that? Do you know anyone who's a treasure hunter? No? There is is actually on YouTube a guy named Bondi Treasure Hunter. I assume he's from Bondi or has some kind of connection to that in Sydney. What he does is he throws a strong magnet into rivers all over the world and then pulls in to to see what he could uh, get from that. And so he, you know, he pulls up all sorts of things like uh, bikes and even scooters and uh, you know, even safes that, that people have chucked uh, off a bridge or something. And most of the stuff, as you can imagine, that he pulls up is already rusted 
It's already basically worthless. And even if it wasn't, well, it wouldn't be long before it was. That gives us a picture of what Jesus is trying to help us understand. See, he doesn't want you spending your life chasing things like that. You might remember the last three passages that we've looked at in this chapter were all about acts of righteousness that Jesus gave instructions for. Remember the key themes of those passages. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. He summarized the key theme of everything at the start of chapter 6 to the end of verse 18 to, to where we're up to today. And the point of all of those, as he talked about prayer and giving to the poor and fasting, was beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And of course, each instruction finished with the reminder that the Father is the one who will reward. In verses 4, 6, and 18, every time he says, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't do your acts of righteousness for other people. Well, this passage that we are looking at this morning flows on naturally from that. In the first 18 verses of chapter 6, Jesus is showing how following him means rejecting the way of the religious hypocrites. It means recognizing that we do not live for the praise and the reward that comes from people, but from God. We seek approval from him alone. And now... In this morning's passage, he shows us how following him means rejecting the way of the God-hating money chasers. In the previous three passages, Jesus says, you think you can get to God by your show of religion? Think again. And in this passage, Jesus says, you think you can get to God by loving the world? Think again. That's the point of his instructions in verses 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Kids, have you ever seen mothballs? I'm not sure that many people use mothballs these days. Adults, hands up if you know what a mothball is. Yeah, okay, so then maybe they're not quite as not used as I thought. So they, these, these mothballs, they're like, it's, it's not a moth in the shape of a ball. It's, it's a little ball that's like, a, like marble size, and you put it in your, your wardrobe or your closet or places where you have your clothes, and, and you put them there to, to keep the moths away. Can you think of why you might want to do that? Because moths eat your clothes. That's right. That's why mothballs exist. The mothballs of Narnia? Oh, there's mothballs in Narnia. There you go. Thank you. That's right. And be that's because he didn't want his clothes to be eaten. But, you know, even if the moths didn't eat your clothes, your clothes would not last forever. That's what Jesus' point is here in this verse. Don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. I'm yet to meet somebody who has a, a, an article of clothing that has lasted their entire life, or at least their entire adult life. I mean, I think Josh is trying to get close to that. But they will not last, right? We know that. But even, even, you see, you might think, okay, well, these are made of material, but, you know, we, we make our buildings, we have cars made of metal, we have this incredible material which, which will last forever. No, it rusts. Even if you make it somehow anti-rust, it will eventually rust. It will eventually die. Interestingly, that word which is translated rust is actually just simply the word eat, so it, and it's obvious that what Jesus is, is getting at is the fact that our material possessions, they will be eaten away. If the moths don't get them, the rusts will, rust will get them, or something else will get them. And if those things don't get them, then the thieves will get them. 
or in our day, the hackers. They will take your stuff. You see his point? Can you see the picture that Jesus is painting here about earthly treasure? It is a, an escalating picture. Whatever treasure you might accumulate and acquire for yourself in this world will all be left here for someone else. And for them, if they choose to treasure it, it will be left for someone else and on and on and on until it's finally gone. None of it will last. This is why some grey nomads today go on what's called a ski holiday, spending the kids' inheritance. If you can't take it with you, so the thinking goes, might as well enjoy it while you're still here, right? What would be the point of accumulating all of this wealth and these possessions if I don't get to enjoy it here and now? If you believe this world is all there is, I can't think of a more sensible way to think about our possessions. How do you know if you are storing up treasure on earth? How can you tell? When I was living in Japan many years ago, our church had a fundraising auction event where uh, I bought the most expensive jacket that I have ever bought in my life. It cost me about, I think, $100. For some of you, you may have different standards to me. I bought it because it was a, a fundraiser for our church and nobody had bid on it. So I thought, well, I'm supporting the church and I get a good jacket. Great. But then after some weeks, I realized that actually, I really liked it. And not only that, my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, she really liked it too. One day I was coming home, wearing it, and as I walked through the front door, a part of it snagged on the doorframe. What do you think my reaction was? expensive jacket that I really love and my girlfriend really loves. I freaked out. And then my heart sank as I examined it and discovered that it now had a tiny hole which you would not be able to repair. That is what treasuring earthly possessions looks like. You see, it might be hard for us as people to grasp what this looks like, so Jesus brings it closer to home. He says in verse 21, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The heart in your chest is, spiritually speaking, inside a treasure chest somewhere. Your heart somewhere is in a treasure chest. Where is that treasure chest? Is it on earth or is it in heaven? And how can you tell? The Bible speaks a lot about the heart. Jesus tells us that the most important commandment out of all the commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we know that the heart is used as an image to describe the center of our desires, the center of our will. But how do we know if our treasure is on earth or in heaven? Brothers and sisters, ask yourself these questions. How does my heart respond when some of my treasured possessions that I have, that I own, are damaged, destroyed, or taken from me? What is my, uh, my in-the-moment response 
Now, that in-the-moment response might be instinctive, and there could be all sorts of emotions and feelings and thoughts happening in that moment. But what happens days later, weeks later, months later? Now, to be clear, possessions are not all necessarily bad, right? But God's good gifts have a way of worming into our hearts and taking his place. There's a list of usual suspects of these kinds of things, isn't there? I'm sure you can think of them. A car, house, spouse, family, clothes, good food, good health. And for the materialists, materialist is a person who believes that, that physical matter, this world, is all there is. This approach, as I mentioned before, to material things makes sense. After all, if I, when I die, if there's nothing after that, I would be a fool not to make the most of this material life. Now, I was reminded of this way of thinking this week. I started playing men's netball with my next-door neighbor. Uh, I bet you didn't even know there was a men's netball team in Darwin. I certainly didn't. This is the first time I have played, uh, you know, some kind of competitive sport for, for many years. And when, when we got there, they said, hey, we've got lots of substitutes, so, so run hard. I was like, great, I'm going to run hard. I'm going to, you know, I haven't done this in ages. I'm so looking forward to it. So I did, ran hard. The next morning I woke up and I had to hobble around. I had the sorest back that I have had in a long time. I have basically been bathing in Voltaren for the last three days. Some say, if you have your health, you have everything. Which is why when it's taken away, that is a significant blow. Sickness and disease and injury confronts us with the choice of where we are storing up our treasure. Will I lament the slow decay of my body's health, of my body's ability and fitness? Will I feel more and more ripped off because of that loss? You see, Christians aren't materialists. We don't believe that this physical world is all that there is. And how we respond to our earthly treasures being taken from us tests how much we believe that. Jesus here makes it clear that his disciples are people who do not live this present physical life for the purpose of storing up earthly treasure. Everything, everything, without exception, we do is for the purpose of eternal treasure. But that's a tricky one, isn't it? We know what earthly treasure is, but what's heavenly treasure? I mean, if you're giving me two options in front of me, you know, should I have a meal at McDonald's or grilled? Well, that's easy to decide which is better. But we're talking about something that we cannot touch yet. Hold on to that question. We'll come back to it. For now, I want us to be thinking about how we know if we are chasing earthly treasure. Because as Jesus warns, that is the thing that you want to run from. Now, as, as I said before, does that mean the possessions are, are all are wrong, physical possessions? Is money therefore bad? No. You may have heard it said that, that money is the root of all evil, but that, that's actually a misquote of 1 Timothy 6.10, where Paul says to Timothy, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You notice what he says there. He is actually echoing Jesus when he says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Money, interestingly, I mean, you think about it, money itself is kind of useless, right? 
I mean, you, you, can't, you can't eat a $50 note. It's, it, you know, this, the, the, the material thing, and, and even these days, I mean, it's, it's not even, most of us don't even have money that you, that you can hold. It's just numbers on a screen. So money itself doesn't really do anything. Uh, this week, I read about the fact that the U.S. debt ceiling, I don't know if you've heard about this, was raised so that the country wouldn't you know, default on all its loans. They, they, they basically want to say, hey, we, we want to be able to borrow more than $30 trillion. Uh, that, uh, like, that is an astronomical number. I don't think any of us can even personally relate to that. I, like, I can't even understand that. But what we can relate to is what money gets you. That's its purpose, after all. You see, the reason the Bible talks about and warns us against money is because money is the gateway to earthly treasure. It's the ship that takes you to the X on the map, on the treasure map. Possessions are the thing that money gets us. Well, we then have to ask the question, well, what about possessions? Are possessions wrong in and of themselves? Perhaps what we need to do is recognize that, that physical things are, are just evil and, and become uh, monks and, and, and take ourselves away from all physical possessions. Well, the Bible teaches that you can have possessions. After all, how can you have the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, if nobody is allowed to own anything? So no, no that's, the issue is not that money itself is bad or that possessions themselves are bad. The issue is that Jesus is, is, is drilling into is the issue of your heart. Where is your heart? He says, look at what you treasure. Look at what you are working towards. Look at how you are spending your money. Look at, look at the things that you buy and the reasons why you buy them. And that will tell you where your heart is. Perhaps the most obvious way to think about how we find it is by asking ourselves this question. Is there any physical possession that you have or that you are chasing right now that has nothing to do with God? You'll recognize it. When you think about why you have it, you'll recognize it. When, when you think about why you have that thing or why you are chasing it, and all that you can come up with is an answer that has no pathway, that has no reason to heaven. Or at best, it's an answer that you've, you've, you've just made up to make it sound godly. I encourage you to, to ponder, to pray, to talk to godly brothers and sisters, to encourage you, to invite their observations on how you are spending your money, on how you treasure possessions. Now, it's interesting. This is the most obvious way to recognize that we are treasuring earthly treasure. That's quite obvious. Loving money and the possessions it can get you and seeking to gain as many as possible shows and reveals a heart that treasures earthly things. But you see, it's not just them. It is also the misers. It is also the thrifty who can fall into that trap just as easily. And the worst part about that is that it can be completely hidden from view and look like a lack of loving earthly treasure. It can look very godly when in reality the the sickness is the same. And that's because the test of whether your, you, your heart treasures earthly things is not just how wealthy you are. It's not just how many possessions you have. It's not even whether how unnecessary your possessions are. Those are certainly important tests. But it is also whether they are the standard by which you judge and value yourself and others. 
Do you consider your value? Do you consider your life and yourself through the lens of your possessions? You see, after my incident with the jacket in Japan, I think God graciously taught me something about how my heart was valuing possessions, and so I gave it away. I was like, I don't want this. But the danger for me is that because I'm so easily pulled, because I'm sorry, because I am not so easily pulled by having fancy and expensive possessions, those things just tend not to be as much of a temptation for me. The problem is that I can begin to boast about my thriftiness. Even if I don't do that out loud, I do it in my own head. I can begin to, to start thinking to myself, oh, look, at, look at those materialistic so-and-sos. I begin to look down my nose at those who, who, who so easily treasure the things of this world and think, Man, can't they be godly like me and, and, and you know, treasure heavenly things? Do you see how the issue is still the same? Do you see how what at root the problem remains? Another test, if this is more your temptation, is to think about how open-handedly you hold the things that you have. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, God loves a cheerful giver. You might not spend much. You might not be tempted to buy and acquire and accumulate much. But do you give much? And do you give cheerfully? You see, if you are all about that long-term investment, if you are all about making your earthly money work to produce heavenly rewards and not earthly rewards, then you'll recognize that you have no need for these possessions, this money. And that makes you a cheerful giver. You're not thinking about how this money is going to somehow bring you back some kind of return here, but how it is going to give you a return there. Now, in thinking about this, it doesn't mean that everything in life must somehow be related to reading the Bible or evangelizing non-Christians or, you know, coming to church. I'm not suggesting that you somehow have to connect every part of your life to one of those three things, though certainly that will be part of it. As John Stott put it, he summarizes it like this, if we are Christians, everything we do, however secular it may seem, like shopping, cooking, totting up, I think that's a British phrase, I think, for, you know, basically right doing accounting, <laughs> totting up figures in the office, everything is religious in the sense that it is done in God's presence and according to God's will. That is how a Christian thinks about, approaches, lives life. Does this describe our lives, brothers and sisters? In what areas may your heart need some adjusting? And perhaps you're still wondering how we figure out that out. Well, we'll keep asking that as Jesus expands on what he has to say, which brings us to our next section, healthy eye, the healthy eye. So having now given his instruction about the heart, storing up treasure in heaven, Jesus now shifts to the eye as an image of what he's talking about. A theologian, D.A. Carson, uh, says... Uh, he, he says about this shift, the eye can be equivalent to the heart. He's saying basically Jesus is using a different image to communicate the same thing. And this makes sense to us again, right? We can, we can relate to this. The thing that we desire and the thing that we love are often seen first with the eyes. You might remember back to our sermon on the book of Judges. Perhaps the most important phrase in that book is one that is repeated, and it is also the last verse of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The eyes are the window. The eyes are the place where those desires are first captured. And this helps us understand what Jesus is saying here in verses 22 to 23. 
The eye is the lamp of the body. It is responsible for the health of the whole body, of the whole person, not just the physical body, the, the, the complete, the whole person. What we desire, what we crave, what we pursue, what we see and we go after, what we love, those are what we will become. If your eye is healthy, he says, it will be full of light. If it is bad or, or, or diseased or sick, is another way of translating that, it will be full of darkness. Do you notice how Jesus says, if the light in you is darkness? I think that's such a strange phrase, don't you think? Why would he say that? How can light be darkness? You know, you, you, don't, you don't walk into a pitch black room and you think, well, this is an interesting kind of light. No, you, you, you say, somebody turn the lights on. I think Jesus here is hinting at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, which says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, there are those who are self-deceived and who tell themselves that they are righteous, that they're actually good people. Who say, I, I have the light. I am light. But in reality, the light within them is darkness. That is a sobering warning. And how do you figure out if that is me? Well, the same way that you figure out where your heart is. A lamp that lights up the body is a desire, is an eye that seeks to store up treasure in heaven is one that seeks and desires the light. But one of the slight differences in emphasis here is probably that, that of, of what we seek in how we live and not just in what we have. So we're not, Jesus here is, is, is getting at not just the, the physical possessions, but the things that our eyes look at and, and think, I want that. Perhaps a way of expressing it is, is the more intangible things of this earth, of this life. You know, this can be tested by asking not about our physical possessions, but about the lives that we live and the goals that we pursue. And again, there is a list of the usual suspects, isn't there? Career, comfort, Good grades, success, notoriety, respect. But the question of these pursuits is the same. Is there any desire? Is there any goal? Is there anything that you are chasing right now that has nothing to do with living for God? How would you respond if that was taken away from you? Or if it became significantly diminished? What if it already has? And in the same way with possessions, this is also not as obvious either. We can just as easily fall into the trap of chasing an ungodly desire. But the question is, do we desire God? Do our eyes seek Him and do our eyes seek to do His will? See, the bright lamps for, for eyes that give light to the whole body, they are the ones that don't seek what is right in our own eyes. But they are the ones that seek what is right in God's eyes. Listen again to these verses from Psalm 119 that we read earlier. With my whole heart, I seek you. My whole heart. Let me not wander from your commandments. Do you see the connection there between heart and obedience? 
I will meditate on your precepts. I will meditate on your law. I will meditate on the things that you have have told me and instructed me to do. And I will fix my eyes on your ways. The eyes that fill the body with darkness, they are the eyes that have dollar signs on them. There's an emoji for that if you're interested. There's an emoji that demonstrates what Jesus is talking about. But the eyes that are fixed on the ways of the Lord, the eyes that desire to do his will, they flood the body with light. And this is the desire of the disciple of Christ. This is, this is what we want as ones who, who are sons of the living God, as ones who have been saved by the grace and love of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this makes sense because the God that we desire, the, the very God that we love, who loved us first, is light. That is what John says in his, in his first letter, in 1 John 1 verse 5. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He is perfect, holy, pure, and righteous. And if he is our heart's desire, if he is the thing that our eyes see and desire, then he is what we want to be like. The healthy eye is one that pursues righteousness. The healthy eye is one that is growing in righteousness. The healthy eye is the one that is craving righteousness. The healthy eye is the one that is praying for righteousness. Brothers and sisters, when our hearts are found in the earthly treasure chest, more often than we like, when our eyes are are seeking to, to, to roam around in darkness, we must plead, plead with God to change them. We need to to come before the Lord to pray as the psalmist prayed. Lord, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Let me not walk away from you. Let me not desire these things that are of you. Darkness, earthly treasures, counterfeit goods. We must encourage one another to pursue him. We must challenge each other to surrender to him. And we must lead one another back to the master, the one who loves and cares for us. And that brings us to our third and final point. One master. Kids, are you familiar with the phrase, don't put all your eggs in one basket? Does anyone know that one? You know, I hope that aside from you guys hearing more of the word, you also learn many idioms from me. Do you know what it means? Have you heard it? What does it mean? (laughs) I don't know what it means, but it's in Wings of Fire. I don't know if you can tell, my daughter loves fiction books. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Adults, can you help me out? What does it mean? Uh, yeah, that, that kind of gets at it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't put all your hopes on the one thing, because that's, that's the idea. So if you put them in two baskets and you accidentally drop one, well, at least you've got some left in the other, right? That's right. Don't put all your hopes in the one thing. If you apply it actually to finances and money, don't put all your investments in the same thing. If you had invested, you know, something 15, 20 years ago in a company called Centro and you put all your money in it, all of that would be gone now because that company went bankrupt. And so the idea is when you invest, you you, you put it in several different places, so just in case one of them doesn't work out, you're still okay. In today's market, you know, don't, don't, don't put all, invest all your money in Tesla, put some in cryptocurrency because they're both just, you know, yeah, anyway. But it's not just investment, as, as Braden said. It's not just money we're talking about. We also talk about this in terms of our hopes. 
So you might think that a relationship is going to bring you all the happiness that you need. But then you think, actually, you know, I've heard that, you know, from some married people that maybe it's not all it's cracked up to be. It's good, but it's kind of, you know, so maybe I should make sure that I try and find happiness in other places as well. I've got to cover all my bases. People think about God like this too. They say, why not store up just, just a little bit of treasure here on earth, right? What's the worst that could happen? Maybe, maybe I don't get, you know, the full amount of treasure in heaven. Maybe I don't get the, the full Christian experience on earth. But at least I still get some. You know, even if, even if my treasure chest in heaven is not going to be as big or as large as, you know, some of those radicals, well, at least I'll still have it. Oh, and, and you know, well, those guys who put all their, their, their eggs in the heaven basket, well, I mean, they get nothing on the earth basket, whereas I, I, I get a little bit. Such thinking thinks that you can cut up your heart and put the two different halves in the two different treasure chests. Or perhaps another way of thinking about it is, is this is the kind of person who says, well, you know, lamps, they are, they are dimmable. You can get dimmable ones, right? And they still give some light. So even if, you know, it's not, it's not as full or, or, or really as, as bright as a bright light bulb, at least I'm not in complete darkness. Friends, Jesus does not give you that option. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You see, the, the eye lamp either fills your whole self with light or darkness. As Jesus says, if that light indeed is darkness, not, not just a bit of darkness, not just partial darkness, he says, if that light is darkness, this is a dichotomy. It is one or the other. How great is that darkness? Have you ever thought that maybe you could do it? You ever been tempted to think that way? I've been looking at, you know, stock investing and stuff recently. It's, it's an approach that just makes sense. Hedge your bets. Have you ever tried to apply that to your relationship with God? That you could have heaven and earth? That you could have light and darkness? That you could have God and sin? If you have, if that is a real wrestle for you right now, that is very likely the reason why you are unhappy with life, why you are dissatisfied with your circumstances, and why you are unable to find joy in suffering. The path to God, the path to true joy and contentment, the path to treasure that lasts forever is going in the opposite direction of every other path there is. You cannot walk both. And if you miss the last couple of signposts in Jesus' teaching, this Last one is a gigantic billboard. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. 
You cannot serve God and money. When Robert and I decided to come back to Darwin after being here for about a year, about 12 years ago, I worked four different jobs. It was brutal. In today's world, we can have multiple jobs and multiple bosses, right? Nobody owns us. And my boss at the Starlight Children's Foundation, she couldn't tell me what to do when I was teaching kids how to play drums. Not just because she didn't know how to play drums, but because she had no authority in that space. Different bosses. But Jesus isn't talking about employment here. He's not talking about your ability to freely engage in a contract with with an organization and say, hey, I will do this work and you can pay me this much and it will come with responsibilities and me sitting under certain authority. No. Slaves or bond servants, as we read about in other parts, places of Scripture, they were the property of the master. Now, there are certainly differences between the practice of, of, of slavery then and compared with modern slavery, which is why the ESV translates it to bond servant, to, to show that difference. But that core fact remained. As one commentator put it, people can work for two employers, but no slave can be the property of two owners. Jesus doesn't say, you should not serve two masters. He says, no one can. It is not humanly possible to be the slave of more than one master. Because you will hate the one and love the other. You see the point of what Jesus is saying here? Are you hearing that? You can only be mastered by one. If, if it were somehow possible, see, you would hate one and love the other because they would have competing ideas. They have, have different views about what you should do with your life, about what you must do with your life. They will have different uh, orders for you about what you should do. This is why if you read through the Gospels, this is how Jesus talks about following him the way that he does. <clears throat> Sadly, in our world today, we, we, we ignore these passages. We think that Jesus is a, is a really nice guy, that he, he, he's, he loves us and he shows us mercy and grace. And we skim over all of these other passages where Jesus talks about the cost of following him. Listen to what he says, Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know what taking up his cross means? It's hard for us to understand. Again, we use, we use it to mean different things. This is literally meaning following me in suffering and in death. Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 33, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The language is so familiar. These are just a few examples. He makes the same point throughout his life and ministry. And he says... Do you want to know what storing up treasure on heaven, treasure in heaven looks like? It looks like this. No one can serve two masters. Only God can be your master. Just as a slave belongs to no one else, so the Christian is a slave to God. 
And Jesus' final sentence here makes clear that the main enemy that we've seen all along is money. If you are storing up treasure on, on earth and you delight in worldly possessions and worldly goals, then money is your master. If you are storing up treasure in heaven and your delight is in loving God and doing his will as your master. Friends, there are two masters. Which will you be a slave to? God promises life and eternal life. Money promises life and eternal death. God delivers on his promises. He always has and he always will. Money entices you in, gives you a sugar rush, then forces you to live on those quick hits until the day you die. God comforts you in affliction. He is with you in, in suffering. He loves you. He disciplines you. He is working in you and sanctifying you in every circumstance such that no matter what happens with your life, you can say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Money buys you temporary relief from suffering. Something to medicate the pain. But it never satisfies the deep longing of your soul. Nor does it, nor can it, eradicate pain from your life. God gives you an eternal, imperishable hope in death. Money gives you false hope that you've had the good life when the reality is that the wisp of your seven or eight decades is virtually nothing in comparison to the eternity of God's wrath that awaits you. God's will is for your good. Money's will doesn't care about you at all. Friends, choose this day whom you will serve. When God is our master, our every desire, our heart, our eyes, our will will be to seek to do his. Perhaps you're thinking here this morning, well, what if I don't like God's will? What if I keep wrestling in my heart about whether God really loves me because I am suffering? Because it looks to me like, you know, I haven't received any earthly treasure. Or because it looks to me in this moment like it's a bit of a raw deal to have heavenly treasure, but none of the stuff that I want now. I don't know if I can trust God in that. Consider this. When a slave knows that they are working for a great treasure, even if the work is grueling, even if the work is painful and the days are long and the body takes a beating, if they know that that payday is going to be astronomical, bigger than the U.S.'s debt, they know it will be worth it. How much more? How much more heavenly treasure and maybe you're thinking, but I don't want heavenly treasure. I don't care about heavenly treasure. I want something now. I want something that I can put my hands on and sink my teeth into and look at hanging on my wall and think, man, that is good. Your brother, sister, the issue there is not God's goodness to you. The issue there is not how great his reward, his treasure is. The issue is not that he is holding back treasure from you. The issue is that your heart fails to recognize all the good that he is doing, all the good that he has done, and all the good that he will do. Listen to 19th century English pastor George Mueller talking about the first step that he takes in how he discerns God's will. 
I seek at the beginning to get my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own in regard to a given matter. Do you hear that? I seek to put my heart in a position where it has no will of its own. Nine-tenths of the trouble that people with people is just here. Nine-tenths of the difficulties are overcome when our hearts are ready to do the Lord's will, whatever it may be. Are you in that nine-tenths this morning? Do you find yourself restless? Doubting, perhaps even resenting God? Because your will is not aligned with His. Friend, if that is the case, let me encourage you and close with two things. Firstly, look forward, far forward to the heavenly treasure that will sound better, the heavenly treasure that will taste better, that will feel better than the best sensation that you have experienced in this life. I can guarantee it because God guarantees it. You will be with the God who loves you. You will be the, with the God that you love and, and the one who has prepared for you an imperishable treasure. Think about this. If you, if you have a friend that you trust or a family member that you deeply trust more than anyone else, would you, if they said to you, here is a map and, and it will take you to the best treasure that you will ever find, would you doubt them? Would you think that they are just trying to play a practical joke on you if you knew that they were telling you in sincerity? No. Well, why do we doubt Jesus then when he tells us to store up treasure in heaven and not on earth? Why do we treat him like a, a financial planner who's dodgy when he says that the best thing that you can do with your money is invest it in treasure that you cannot see and that you will not access until you die? It sounds like a tall order. It sounds like something difficult to believe. And yet, if we trust the Lord, then we can know that that is true. See, this has more to do with us believe, believing Him than whether He will give us reward. And so how do you build that trust? Well, by doing the second thing. Not just looking forward, but looking back. Look back on his kindness to you. Look back on all the many ways that he has walked with you, held you, sanctified you, reordered the priorities of you and the loves of your heart, the way that he has flooded your heart with light, the way that he has grown in you a, a hatred for sin and a love for him and increased your appetite for him and for his word. Look at those small steps that God has, has done in your life. And if you still find it hard to see his goodness, even in that in your life, then look even further back. Look at his love, which he displayed for you in sending his one and only son, who gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for your sin so that you might turn to him and trust in him to surrender your life to him and live for him and to receive that as a free gift of grace. He did that for you. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet trusted in Jesus, he did that for you. Let me urge you to turn to him today. This is where it all begins. When we see the goodness of God to us in the gospel, when we see his love to us and when we see that we, we can trust in what he promises, well, this enables us to do what Jesus says later on in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells 
all that he has and buys that field? Will you know the joy of heavenly treasure now and in eternity? Let's pray. Father, search our hearts. Expose within us by your Holy Spirit any way that we are placing our treasure in the things of earth and not of heaven. Please do this in your mercy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.